So Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Remember, we, uh, I think I said last week, we're going to start entering a, a large section of Ecclesiastes that's going to be a lot more classical wisdom literature. It's going to be um, shorter, concise paragraphs or even just verses that offer wisdom and knowledge about how to live in God's world. And it's not going to be all negative, right? We've kind of made it through the doom and gloom of some of these early chapters. Um, it's, there's going to be alternative ways to live life. Better ways is the word that, that the preacher keeps using. It's better this way. It's better this way. And one of those ways is pointing us to there is a way to worship God. There's a, a certain things that we can do. There's a way that God wants to be worshipped. There's a way God invites us in uh, to his presence to worship him. And so it would be good. It would be better to worship God his way than to worship God a way of our own choosing. So that's what these seven verses are going to be about. So here now the reading of God's word, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word that instructs us in how to worship you so that we can worship you rightly, so that we can worship you with reverence, that we can worship you um, in awe of all that you have done. Lord, I pray that these words would instruct our hearts, uh, that they would correct any false views or, or things that we get wrong about how to worship you. pray that in the preaching of this sermon, that the word of God would be magnified, your son glorified, and the people of God edified. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So growing up, I, I grew up in the church, and I am almost 100% certain everyone here um, had a similar experience of either growing up in the church or at least having this experience about church, and that was you. whenever I went to church, I had to be in my Sunday best, right? There were certain clothes in the closet that I was not allowed to touch until Sunday morning, and it was okay because I didn't want to touch them. They were, you know, uncomfortable. One of the great lines of C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia series is in The Last Battle, it's the last book, and everyone's put on these really gorgeous clothes. I mean, they're like fancy, fancy clothes. But in Lewis's Narnia, your, your good clothes are your comfortable ones. And of course, his jab uh, is the fact that our, com our good clothes are never comfortable, right? There's a reason we want, you know, sweats and sweatshirts and comfy clothes because, you know, who wants to be going about their day in like a tuxedo or something like that? But I had to dress right. I had to have a suit, tie, and it was also the late 80s, early 90s, so I had to have a double-breasted suit, which was a real, uh, 
That was real special. But that was the idea of coming to God, you know, to worship him, right? God wants you to look your absolute best. And God forbid if you get your Sunday clothes dirty, then you were in a whole heap of trouble. There were other things that we have to do in Sundays. We didn't just look our best. You had to be on your best behavior, right? You couldn't fidget in church. You couldn't get distracted. You couldn't knock things over. I remember one Sunday, I, I must have been really annoying my parents, and my dad gave me his Bible and let me flip through it. Well, I had a pen, and I decided that he needed underlining. He also needed to have my name across the pages in one whole section of uh, the book of Psalms. Yeah, yeah, I still remember that whole thing. But I had disobeyed. I had disturbed part of the service, especially once he looked down and saw me writing all over his Bible. I wasn't, you know, doing things right. I wasn't on my best behavior. Is that what we think of when we think of this very beginning of this uh, section here of guard your steps when you go to the house of God? When we come to worship God, are we supposed to, you know, put on our best clothes? Are we supposed to make sure that we look like we're pious? Are we supposed to make sure that we look like we're a Christian? Are we supposed to put on a show? Or should we be approaching God with a heart that wants to worship him, with a heart that hungers for the words of life that we only find in scripture, or to take the sacrament that we can only receive in church and be, you know, feed on Christ to strengthen our souls. Which would God prefer? The double-breasted blazer tie combo, or a kid that was really wanting to know what it means to follow Jesus, maybe with jeans and a t-shirt on like I wanted to wear to church. Now, I also, and maybe you've experienced this too, until I became a Presbyterian, I had no idea that God actually cares about how we worship. This is a hallmark of Presbyterian and Reformed theology. Uh, in our book of church order, we actually have a section called the Directory of Public Worship. That's an ex exciting name, but it is a blueprint of the right way to worship God according to Scripture. That is what Presbyterians believe, that if we worship God, we follow the way God's outlined how to be worshipped in Scripture. I used to think it was just about having something powerful happen, like some type of really, and this was always the language, a real radical encounter where like I'd be, you know, having, being slain in the spirit or speaking in tongues or really felt the weight of glory or something like that. And it was also always accompanied with really upbeat music, almost like rock concert level with light shows. I went to a church with smoke machines once. I mean, there was a whole sense of creating this atmosphere of something exciting. But a lot of that worship would have me leaving saying, what did I get out of it? How was, how was what I needed met in this service? Was I taken care of? Or should my heart have been, did I worship God the way he desired to be worshiped? Did I praise him the way he desired to be praised? Did I hear his word and was convicted or encouraged or comforted? Did I glory in the God of my salvation? So the preacher here is encouraging us, urging us to worship God with a certain level of reverence. And he urges us to do this in three distinct ways. We're supposed to examine how we approach God, examine how we worship God, and examine who God is. So when we examine our, our approach to God, that's the very first verse, right? He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. 
guard your steps. Watch over your hearts and minds. This language of guard is actually a, a command. It's an imperative. And it's something similar to what Adam was given when he was placed in the garden in Genesis 2. He's given this beautiful garden. God places Adam in it. And he says, watch it, keep it, protect it. Why do we have to guard our steps when we approach the house of God? Which, remember, the house of God means the temple. It is the place where God's glory dwells among his people. He is, there's a spot in the temple that is called the Holy of Holies that only one human being could go into and once a year, right? The high priest. So why do we have to watch and guard our steps when we go before God? Because he's holy. One of the defining attributes of God is he is a holy God. And when we come before him, we are coming really close to that holiness. So if you think back to Moses at the, uh, uh, in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, this bush is on fire. He says, that's pretty amazing because it's on fire, but it's not burning up. I'm going to go check it out. And after he gets to the bush and after he hears his name repeated by God himself, do you remember what God says? He says, don't come any closer Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God's presence, whether it was in a temple, the house of God, or a bush, immediately made everything around the area holy. And so Moses had to guard how he was approaching God, so he takes off his sandals. Now, fast forward through Exodus, the people have been liberated from Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai, and God comes down. And if you read through Exodus 19, and you remember the movie Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston, I mean, they really do get part of this right when it comes to the Bible, because if you remember in Charleston Heston's Ten Commandments, you have this dark foreboding mountain and it's covered in smoke and there's red fire and there's lightnings and there's this deep thunder. I mean, that's that is how Exodus 19 describes it. And imagine if you were an Israelite, you've just seen this God who your ancestors worship completely humiliate all the gods of Egypt. And now he wants to have a face-to-face with you. And he's coming down on this mountain and it's thunders and it's lightning and it's terrifying. And so God commands Moses that his holiness now has filled this area, had surrounded the mountain. So he says, you have to set up limits. You're going to make markers so that the people will not come too close to this mountain because if they do, they will die. My holiness would not be able to stand their sinfulness and they'll end up dead. And so he says, but you and Aaron and some of the other elders can come up. And they all said, no, thanks. We'll just send Moses. We don't want to get that close if that's the warning. If there's got to be a line set up that if we cross, we're going to die just by entering this holy site, then we'll just send the one guy who's been in contact with you the most, Moses. You can think back, too, to the theophanies. Big theological word. Theophanies just means the presence or manifestation of God in the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, there's the most of them in any other book. In the book of Judges, you have the angel of the Lord coming to Gideon, coming to Samson's parents. And both times in Gideon's story and in Samson's parents' story, they had this encounter with the angel of the Lord. There's sacrifices involved. And then the angel of the Lord takes their sacrifices, goes back up to heaven. And Gideon and Samson's parents are terrified. And they actually say, we're going to die now because 
we've seen God. There is this holiness about God that troubled ancient Israel, that troubles us because we know we're not holy. We know we're sinful. We know, like Isaiah confesses in his big vision in Isaiah 6, that we're people of unclean lips, a people of unclean hearts, of unclean thoughts. We need to be made holy. So guard here isn't keeping uh, your double-breasted blazer buttoned all day during the church service. It isn't, you know, making sure you don't write all over your daddy's Bible, although you should probably not write all over your daddy's Bible in the middle of church. But guard does mean that we are to be mindful of what we are doing when we come before God to worship him. And it doesn't mean outward appearances. Remember uh, when Daniel, or Daniel, when Samuel is looking for the next king of Israel in David, and he goes to Jesse, and Jesse brings out all of his sons, excluding David, and the very first one comes out, and he's tall and handsome, and the previous king, Saul, was tall and handsome, so that's got to be what a king should look like. And so Samuel says, this is the guy. And God tells him, a man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's not the guy I want. I want the one whose heart is after my heart. And he's the one out shepherding sheep and protecting them. We are to guard our hearts, not by putting our best face uh, forward, not by trying to look the part, but by actually taking stock, looking inside and saying, Am I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't have my life put together. And so I'm about to draw myself near to God. Is my heart ready to worship him? So if we're asking that of ourselves, if we're trying to think of ways throughout our week of how we should be confessing, repenting, what sins we need to get rid of in our lives, and we finally come to Sunday, what are we supposed to do when we get there, right? If we're thinking of the house of God being the church today, we're gathered here together, not just necessarily the building, but gathering together to hear the word preached, then what are we supposed to do when we gather together? How is God to be worshiped? That's one of the things we have to examine. Read with me again verses 2 through 7. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow meaning, or many, there is vanity. These are all about speaking and talking. And for the most part in worship, how much are you talking right now? Very little. When I uh, spent time being Pentecostal and also at a, at a sort of non-denominational uh, church that they actually really loved talking back to the pastor and the pastor really wanted it. So throughout the entire church service, people would be saying, amen, that's right, keep going, keep preaching, pastor. There's this kind of conversation between the pastor and the congregation, which sometimes could also be distracting. But you're, you're supposed to be listening, right? Do not draw, uh, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Listening 
is part of worship. Listening is tied to obedience. If you think of Deuteronomy 6, this is the famous passage that Israel is supposed to confess. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That, that here is the same word for listen. Pay attention about worshiping God and who God is. One of the most famous connections about listening as a way to learn and grow in obedience comes again from Samuel. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul is supposed to be waiting for Samuel to perform sacrifices before he goes to war. Saul gets impatient, offers the sacrifices, and when the Bible says right as he's doing the sacrifices, then Samuel shows up. And Samuel's really upset with Saul. He is not done when he's He's done what he's not supposed to do. It is not Saul's place to offer sacrifices to God. It was Samuel's. So Samuel starts to lecture and speak to Saul, and he says to him, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. That first, the word obey there is listen. As we listen to prayers, as we listen to hymns, as we listen to the word of God preach, we are learning obedience. We are learning to follow God. This isn't just a plea to listen to my sermons. It's not just uh, a plea to, to, you know, just make me feel better about, you know, coming up to me after the service and saying, hey, that was a really good point you made or good job of the sermon. We're actually commanded to listen to what God is saying from his word. It's a call to be present. Six days we're supposed to labor and toil. Six days we're supposed to do everything else and be very, very busy. We have one day where we're supposed to rest. One day where we're supposed to be quiet. One day where we're supposed to reflect on God alone. And that's this day, the Lord's day. It's a call to be present and to listen so that we can guard our hearts and grow in knowledge of the Lord, grow in understanding of our faith. Paul encourages us that by hearing of the word of God, we're, that's actually how we hear the gospel preached and how we're saved. So are we coming here and actually paying attention to what we're doing? Are we coming here with hearts ready to listen to all that God is saying to us? Think of it this way. Remember when we could go on planes and not worry about COVID or anything like that, and you actually got to travel around fairly easily. Whenever you get on a plane, what's the first thing they do? They'd tell you the security protocols. Like, this is what you do if the plane starts to crash. It's a good reminder of, you know, what you're about to do. But they tell you the flotation device. They tell you to put your oxygen mask on before your kids, so that way, you know, no one panics. And they tell you all these things. How many of you actually pay attention to it? What cracks me up is when you go on the plane, the, the people start telling you about all these safety procedures and you'll be next to like the teenager, or maybe it's you, and you've got the iPods in blasting music and you're just not paying attention. Like, do you, you're being told how to survive a plane crash. You're being told about what to do when everything else is going on around you that's going wrong. You're being told like how to be saved and you're not listening. In fact, you're actively tuning out the words that could help you. To draw near, is to, uh, to listen is better than to offer sacrifices. To draw near to God, to listen, teaches us obedience. To hear the word of God that brings salvation. Jesus warns us too 
about this. He tells us not to talk uh, over God. When he's giving a, his famous Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about what it's like to pray and to not be like people that are, are praying and just using all these words. It's almost like if they can speak and pray faster, that somehow it'll hit God better, or it'll get to him quicker. And so Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So we need to be careful about how we're uh, participating in the worship through listening, but we also need to be careful about the words we use when we worship God, right? That's what verses 4 through 7 are, the, the talking of vows. So what are vows? I mean, when we, take, when we think of vows, we probably think mostly of marriage vows. Everyone remembers the exchanging of the rings, I vow to, you know, be faithful. I can't even remember our vows. Like, the, mem- the, the wedding day, I know we made them. I know they're very sacred. I don't think I could tell you exactly what I vowed, other than, you know, I would be there for her in sickness and in health. I would take care of her. I think those are the big ones. But they're, they are important, right? We are before a whole bunch of people that we love, making commitments to one another and to God. Ian Proven, an Old Testament commentator, said this about vows. Temple vows were a common feature of Old Testament worship and involved promises to consecrate such things as sacrifices or money to God in return for granting a request in prayer. The temptation presented to the worshiper was to avoid fulfilling the vow once the prayer has been answered. That's why uh, the preacher says it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. That's why in verse 2 it says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. We've probably all experienced the prayers that, you know, sometimes they call them the, the arrow prayers or, you know, we, a quick fire up to heaven. You know, we're in a situation that we just need to get out of, and we say this prayer like, God, if you get me out of this parking ticket, I promise I will go serve you better, or I promise I won't speed again. Or you could be like Martin Luther, the great reformer who gets stuck in a uh, thunderstorm and the way out of it he thought was to promise God that if he is delivered from the thunderstorm, he'll become a monk. Well, Martin Luther actually held up that vow and became a monk and that gave us the Protestant Reformation through that. But scripture itself is filled with people who are quick to make these vows to God and they end disastrously. Tragically, you could think of Jephthah and Saul. If you remember the story of Jephthah, Jephthah is one of the judges of Israel. Israel's, you know, messed up again. God brings the deliverer. It's Jephthah. And uh, Jephthah is, before he's going to, the, to fight the Philistines, I think it was, or one of the, maybe it's the Ammonites, he, he makes this vow. He says, God, if you come through for us in this way, when I get home, the first thing that comes out of my tent, I will sacrifice to you. And God delivers Israel through Jephthah, and Jephthah comes home, and he's happy he's won this great victory. The first thing that comes out of his tent is his one and only daughter. And his victory was turned to defeat. And he screams and he wails and he's sad. And he tells his daughter why he's sad because she doesn't get it. And then she's sad because, is dad going to sacrifice me because of this ridiculous vow he made? And then the story ends really ambiguously. It's almost like if you watched a movie and sometimes they cut black on a scene that, you know, is real suspenseful and you kind of have to figure out what happens. Because all it says is that Jephthah fulfilled his vow and that now there's a tradition of virgins in Israel going to weep where Jephthah's daughter wept. 
Saul made another rash vow. When Saul was fighting in a great battle, he told uh, everyone that they were to not delight in any of the food or in any of the spoil that day in their victory. Well, the reason they're victorious is because his son Jonathan went out and fought, and he didn't hear his dad make this promise to God and, and this promise to you know the people that they have to follow. And so after they win, Jonathan's going around. He's hungry. He just saved the day. So he dips his spear in some honey and takes of it. And the Bible says, too, that it was a good thing. Like the honey enlightens his eyes. He becomes bright. And he said, I mean, this is really good to enjoy the gifts of God through victory. And instead, they're cursed because Jonathan did something that Saul bound everyone else to. He made a rash vow. Or we could think of all the bribery prayers that we do. Like I said, if you get me out of this, God, I promise I'll be like this. Every pastor has probably prayed some prayer like this when they say, Lord, I will serve you anywhere you call me to because I'm so pious. I've got my double-breasted blazer on. I look the part of the pastor. I'm committed. I'm ready to serve you wherever, wherever you call me except the following states, you know, the entire Southwest, Canada. And then all of a sudden we come up with these, you know, exclusions to what we want God to do in our lives. Or we vow these big things that we have no intention of fulfilling. That's not what God delights in. You can compare it to the Lord's Prayer. What does God desire? That we pray for simple things, our daily bread. We pray for daily faithfulness. One of my pastors uh, said something that has always stuck with me when we were talking about what do you do when you're struggling with a sin? You're trying, you're, you're aware of this issue in your life. You're trying to, to kill it. You're trying to fight it. You're praying. You're reading scripture. You're confessing. You're trying to be held accountable. So, you know, what do you do if you messed up? You know, you, you had the whole plan of how you're going to combat this sin, and you had, you know, a few days success. You messed up on day seven or day eight or day nine. What do you do? And you, my pastor said, you, you thank God for the grace that brought you thus far. You repent of what you have done. You're grievous over it. And then you pray for new mercies tomorrow. You pray for grace for the next day and for the next day. And every day is a daily dependence on grace. And that is a way to kill sin, a way to make vows that we can just, Lord, get me through this day. Give me the strength to survive this day. Finally, if we've examined how we're supposed to approach God how we're supposed to worship God through the watching of our words. We have to examine who God is. I've already covered part of this. He is holy, right? Exodus 3, Leviticus 19, God is holy, therefore you should be holy. But there's also this distinction between God being in the heavens and us being on the earth. Right? That's what it says in verse 2. God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be view. There's this distinction in the scriptures, right? There is God, and there's everything not God. One of our seminary professors used to draw two lines. One was horizontal. That was, every, that was creation. Everything that was below that line was the creature. Everything above that line was God. There was only one thing above the line, God. There's the creator and the creature, and the two are distinct. God is in heaven. You are on earth. When you think about it with the references of God so far in Ecclesiastes to emphasize this distinction between creator and creature, 
How many times have we heard the name of God so far in this book? I counted. And so you'll probably go home and count to make sure my count was right. But 12. We're in chapter 5. We've heard God's name referenced 12 times up to this point. In these seven verses alone, God's mentioned six times. This whole point of worship is to be about God. God is the creator. God is the giver. God is the one who is worthy of worship. It is not about us. It is God. And so God is one we must fear. And growing up, when you hear the fear of God, you would think, I I was always afraid that God was out to like smite me. I was always afraid. I was actually really terrified at the rapture. This is not related to anything in this text, but I was afraid of the, the stuff I heard about the rapture, about the judgments that would come, that they were all literal, that there was going to be massive bloodshed everywhere, that there were going to be these creatures that were very literal, uh, that were going to be flying around trying to kill me. And I mean, that seemed like the fear of God. And there is a fear of God because he is, you know, He's a bit terrifying. Remember, we talked about the mountain with lightnings and thunders. I mean, God is not somebody to take lightly. But fear in this way, used in the context of worship, does genuinely mean something a bit different. It's not being terrified of God so much that you don't want to approach him, but it's holding him in such reverence, such awe of everything that God is. Proverbs says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The preacher here is saying, fear of God is the beginning of right worship. It's not terror, but a holy awe in what God has done and who he is. So who is he? Who is this God that we're supposed to fear? He's a creator. He's a deliverer. He's a sanctifier. He's a comforter. He's a savior. He is Lord. He is king. He is friend. He is father. He is brother. He is the one who is faithful when you're faithless. He loves us so much that while we were still sinners, he died for the ungodly. It is not that God is, uh, or it is that, I messed all that sentence up. God is worthy of all of our worship because he is all these things. Because he is this long list of a sovereign, creating, sanctifying Savior that he's worthy of worship. And so when we approach him, it is good for us to approach him the way he wants us to. The ending of this chapter begins the same way the beginning does. They're they're bookended by commands. The beginning one was guard your steps. The ending is to fear God. We are commanded to worship him with reverence and awe. Our God may no longer tremble the mountains with smoke and fire, but he does shake up our hearts with warnings from his word and his son. And so I'll close with the way the author of Hebrews describes this God who is worthy of worship, who is worthy of fear, and who is worthy to be worshipped the way he asks us to worship him. The author of Hebrews says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Let us worship him now through prayer and through the taking of his sacrament. Gracious God, we are mindful, I hope, of your holiness, that we come with sins, with stains, with defeat, and we tremble that you are holy. We tremble with how we could approach such a God, and yet you have made a way for us through your Son. You've taken our blood-stained, sin-stained clothing and given us clothing of his righteousness. You've accepted his sacrifice on the cross so that we can be made right with you. As we come now to your table, may we be filled with fear of what that meant, of the sacrifice your son gave for us, of the privilege it is to participate in your sacrament, and of the strength to not only be uh, in awe of your holiness, but also to be made holy as you are holy. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.